Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Hello and welcome, it's him, Mark Kermode. And me, Simon Mayer. We're on BBC Radio 5 Live. This is our best of 2016 show, and what a year 2016 has been. So much to look back on fondly. Hmm. Well, we'll stick to films and coming up reviews and top guests. Some of you have asked to hear again, including in this first section. I, Daniel Blake, Amara Santi, Mark Ruffalo, Toby Jones, not Noby Jones and Tom Hiddleston. By the way, it's one of those pre-recorded shows. So please don't send in texts because although they'll be witty and entertaining, no one will read them. Shall we start? Yep. Here comes Mark on a film he just loved. It's Infernal Inferno. It appears you're out of options. Tell me about the threat. None as Inferno. <laughs> Inferno. We start with the good news. He's lost the mullet. Fine. So he's had a good, it's a decent haircut, but he's had more than a haircut. There, we start off with some sort of visions of the apocalypse. Okay, visions of apocalyptic, apocalypse stuff. And Tom, Bob, wakes up in a hospital. He doesn't know where he is until somebody pulls back the curtain and he finds out that he's not where he thought he was. He, you know, he thought he was somewhere else, but he's actually so he's, he's Florence, Italy, um, probably. And he's got a bullet wound on, on the side of his head. And he doesn't know what's going on. Really? Felicity, yeah, no idea. He's got amnesia. Okay, So he can't remember any of the explaining that's been done up until that point, and probably nothing but explaining had happened until that point, but he's in hospital with amnesia. You won't be able to trust your own thoughts for a while. Luckily, the doctor is uh, Felicity Jones, who's fab, obviously, but then... Somebody comes in who's dressed as a policewoman, but she's trying to shoot him, right? Which is terrible, right? So they have to run and run away, run. He's very and ill. Do they explain as they're running? Wait. Yes, they run. What's going on? They say to each other. What's happening? Where, where should we run to? Let's jump on this bike and then this and then run away. Now we run away to your apartment, like in American Werewolf in London, which always happens. I have no memory of taking that mask. You did. I just saw you. I want to know what I'm involved with. There's a guy, and he's very uh, rich and angry and cross, and he's somehow connected with a with a virus, which is probably bad. Okay, and, but the clues to the things that he's going to do that are bad are in works of art and religious places all around the country. So what must happen now? is that Tom Hanks and Felicity Jones must run from country to country and they must run into churches and art galleries and point and look and explain and have a look at maps of hell and explain that all oh, that demon's the wrong way up and that's got the number four written on it. But if you turn, because what's happened is that as this plot has been laid down, the, here's the thing about the film. Um, firstly, it is intergalactically stupid in the same way that... Um, uh, gods of Egypt. I mean, just mind pulverizingly dumb. Despite the huge amounts of uh, you know high heart references in it, it is a film of lowest common denominator stupidity. It has a script that appears to be a collection of outtakes from QI of people, you know, people discussing that the, the, did that and did that and did that, and that, but the bits that weren't funny and didn't want to go in the film. It is a film in which. As exactly in uh, Dan Brown's novels, although I haven't read this one, I started reading The Da Vinci Code and just thought, Dan, has nobody ever explained the interior monologue to me? People don't have to say things out loud all the time. 
In this, they do. So literally, both uh, Tom and Felicity, who's a doctor, but is very interested in Dante, knows a lot about Dante. As they run along, as they run along, they explain, who was Dante? Well, he was a this, then he wrote the Inferno. He was that. Dante's Inferno. Dante defined our modern conception of hell 700 years ago. But these circles of hell have been rearranged. Why Dante? Why this map of hell? Dante. Dante's death mask. Yes. We've got to get to Florence. I need access to the Dante mask. The Dante mask is no longer here. It was stolen. Dante Inferno, what was that? Oh, it's a description of hell. They had all these different layers in it. Really? And how did he do that? And then he wrote the thing on the thing, and then, oh, now we must go here. So we go to this country. I'm now running into a room. I'm running out of a room. I'm doing this. Constant, 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 explaining the plot, explaining the plot, explaining the plot. And the audience is sitting there going... What? Why? Um, in what way is this dramatically interesting? What is dramatically interesting about it is it's a film, the script for which is so telephone directory-like that neither Tom Hanks, who is, you know, generally sort of pretty brilliant, nor Felicity Jones, nor Irfan um, Khan, who's actually terrific, but he's hardly in it, only he's a little bit, can manage to make this stuff sound like anything that's even vaguely sensible. You get the sense that the apocalypse is coming, and I had the sense that the apocalypse, frankly, could not come soon enough. Oh, my God. Dante's Inferno isn't fiction. It's a prophecy. Someone created a plague. Our population is spiraling out of control. Inferno is the cure. They're going to wipe out half the world's population unless we find this virus. I started off being slightly entertained by the sheer preposterousness of it, and then very quickly bored by the just barraging travelogue nonsense about, oh, where are we going to go now? Oh, no, now he's got a mask and somebody's written something in it, but he's written it upside down and back to front and the nose of that horse is pointing to north. So therefore, now we're going to have to go to another... And then there's going to be a train and then we're going to go into another bit and there's going to be a thing. And while it's happening, and then, and then, and then, there's a twist. And all I can say about the twist is, if you didn't see the twist coming, that's because you were asleep for the first two-thirds of the film. Because when the twist comes, it is... It's honking, 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 you know, stand away from the platform because there is a large twist arriving on platform four. Here it comes. There it is signaling from the bong, 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 bong. Here comes the twist. Here comes and there is the twist. It's, I mean, it's rubbish. It is really proper, full on boulder dash. father will hate him on sight. He's cleverer than him, and he's black. She might change her mind. I've met the man I want to spend my life with. <laughs> Are you insane? White, British, and she's a salesman's daughter. My grandfather was a king. I am his heir. I have a responsibility to return home to my people. I will never achieve anything worthwhile if I leave my heart here. I am the government's representative in Southern Africa. The policy of apartheid. You know this word. If you choose to marry the leader of an African nation, you will be responsible for the downfall of the British Empire in Africa. Have you no shame? Over two decades of preparing you to be our king. And this is how you face me. How long before the village dust gets in our eyes? I am told that you no longer wish for me to honor my duty as your king because of the color of the wife I have chosen.
And that's a clip from A United Kingdom. It's directed, of course, by Amara Santi, who's back on the show. Before we go any further, I'm going to read you an email, which came from uh, a listener, Jen Cresswell. Right. Okay. Yeah. Please pass on everyone's love and gratitude to Amma for being an amazing director. So this is, you can get this isn't going to be a tough question at the end of this. No. Okay. Oh, that's so lovely. And for creating such wonderful films. And thank you, Wittertainment, for featuring and promoting a female director so prominently. Oh. Amara Santi is a true role model for all people, especially for young women, and it helps that the show follows her career closely so everyone can see Amma's hard work, dedication and overcoming of hurdles in a very difficult industry in an intelligent and determined manner. I hope you're not welling up, by the way. I am. Amma and Wittertainment make a great team, and I cannot wait to see United Kingdom. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. Um, thank you for being so wonderful, <laughs> Amma. Uh, also, Amma has a great sense of humour, which I love. Her laugh is in league with Chuckles Branner. Anyway, thank you very much. Anyway, I'm going to try so. not to laugh now. I'm halfway between <laughs> laughing and, and wanting to blubber. Thank you so much for that lovely email. Um, I have to say that for me, it's uh, emails like that and the response that I get that keeps keeps me going to be really honest with you, because it is a struggle in the industry. It is really hard. Um, you, you're getting a movie financed uh, and every day you don't know what hiccup you're going to come up against. You know, you lose a financier and you may have five fi- financiers and you lose one and suddenly the film is in complete jeopardy or collapses and you never know whether that labour of love that you've been working on for 10 years, as I have with my, my, my next one, um, is, is, is simply going to come to an end as a dream. So it's those moments when you get a lovely message like that that you just think, yeah, I'm going to keep going because it's worth it. My big bugbear with most musical biopics is continuity of voice. The voice that someone speaks with has to be the voice that they sing with. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it's you know Gary Boosie and the Buddy Holly story. Yeah. And it's Whacking Phoenix and Walk the Line. Yeah. It, you have to have continuity between them. And if you establish that voice at the beginning, then it's then it's absolutely fine. Then you actually do away with all the stuff about imitation or cutting it. But it has it has to be the same voice. The yeah. voice we hear talking has to be the voice we hear singing. Yeah. And that's you know if it isn't, it, I just puts me right off well it's like it's a break in the interpretation if you you know if you're speaking as a character you've dressed as a character and the, and the character's profession is a singer and then somebody else is singing it's like you know why turn up in a way i, I think and, and i was you know i get inspired by strange perhaps strange things you might not think of you think of you know de niro in raging bull who does all his own boxing or mm-hmm. or, or sissy spacek in the coal miner's daughter which is actually um, we did well, all our own coal mining. Astonishingly, she <laughs> did. Um, the people, you know, if you're if you're going to play a character who does something, then then I think the requirement is to do do that thing. Have you still got your Hank with you? Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, good, excellent. I brought him in my pocket. Excellent. Well, this would seem to be an appropriate moment then okay. uh, for for your inner Hank. And Mark, what are you going to do? Are you going to just sort of I'm going to follow it? him. I've got. I mean, basically, I do what, what bassists do, which is that they watch the lead players left hand and go, oh, "I'll play that note." This is a fir- this is a huge honour. This is a first. Oh, I've don't never- be silly. It is. <laughs> so, so, what? Which song have uh, have you? Chosen? Well, I f- I feel like the song is called "I Saw the Light." Which, you, which, of course, you don't. Which you don't see in the. Well, you do. There's a very, there's a very short scene where um, Elizabeth Olsen, who plays Audrey yes. and myself, we sing, "I saw the light" to Baby Hank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll save that. Keep our powder dry. But let's say, let's sing, "I saw the light." Let's have a go. And I should say, we're we're filming this, and uh, and it's in super surround uh, Hiddlevision. Hiddlevision has not been invented yet, but this is the first time Hiddlevision is being used. Which key would you like to do this in? I'd like to do this in the key of G. Ah, the saddest of all. And I will give... um, So we'll just do a verse and a chorus and a... 
You do see where we get to. Do the whole thing. It's only like two minutes 40, isn't it? <laughs> okay, we'll see where we get to. Two, three, four. I wondered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light No more darkness, no more night Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside Praise the Lord, I saw the light Just like a blind man, I wandered alone Worries and fears I gave for my own And like a blind man, that God gave back his sight Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> there you go. I'm applauding on behalf of everybody else. Um, so is, is your... Come out and Tom Middleton, um, I saw the light. Yeah, credited that way round. <laughs> I know there's things you cannot tell me. But I also know there's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? the least glamorous film you've been in these are the kind of movies that uh, i grew up on that that made me want to be a filmmaker and um there we don't see a lot of them anymore uh i wasn't sure that the movie was going to be accepted and and widely embraced as as it has been so i think there's it's you know when you make these kinds of movies and you do it well, people respond to them. And I think it, it, it tells us that, you know, the water's okay to make yeah. these kinds of movies. What's it like making an ensemble piece like this? I mean, you're a theatre actor uh, as well. You spend a lot of time uh, yeah. in theatre. But this is very much... A, there isn't really a leading actor. Which I love. In this, and you're, there are many scenes where you're all sitting around and you're throwing ideas at each other. What was that like? That is, I feel like, the, the great joy of being an actor. Um... And it's uncommon. Uh, it is what you do in the theater. And I've spent a career always trying to do what we did in the theater. And, um, and so to have everyone sort of floating each other's boat, so to speak, to, to, to sublimate your need to, to, to shine or to, <laughs> to take the stage. Have the big speech. <laughs> yeah, to have the big speech. All, all, all those things... You, you have to commit to as a group and um and but but when you when it happens and an ensemble gives over to that type of work it's magical and uh, the whole is so much more powerful than than you know the singular and what i think's really remarkable about this movie is that everyone's kind of playing a character it's not just the lead actor playing a character it's like everyone's sort of outside of their there's you know their 
their shtick. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, and it also takes a lot of courage as an actor to do ensemble work. But when it happens, it's just very exciting and Sean, uncommon. Sean Penn said on the show, he was talking about casting Mark Rylance in a movie that he'd been in. He said, you can always tell a theatre actor. You can always tell someone who has that discipline. Do you think that's right? I do. I, I see it all the time. Um, you know, Brian Darcy James uh, is this one. This is like his first movie, but, you know, he's exquisite and delicious in the movie and just wonderful and full and, you know, playing in the, the, the kind of the genre that we're, that we're, we're, we're metting out. So I've always loved working with theater actors, and, uh, and, um, and I know that uh, the great directors that I've worked with also love working with theater actors as well. One of the great things about this film, Mark, is the, the fact that you manage, I mean, reporting basically can be a very boring thing to do, you know, but you, you, your film manages to make the creation of a, a database about Catholic priests in Boston quite an exciting yeah. moment. That's, that's extraordinary. Yes, I think that is Tom and Josh Singer. And, um, who did the screenplay. Yeah, who did the yeah. screenplay. And who, from very first blush, I mean, the moment I cracked it open and started reading it, I, I, I couldn't put it down. And I felt strongly that it was so exciting, even though it could be mundane. But never for a moment did I ever feel like, oh, this is going to be a snore to people. No, well, it, it absolutely is. It feels like a period piece, even though it's like 2002. Because it's pre-internet, it feels as it's like from another era. Yeah, because it is another era. I mean, literally from 2002 to today, the world has changed so incredibly fast that 10 years now covers what used to be 20 or 30 years, I feel like. We're moving that quickly. Is it Thor next? Is... Thor, Thor 3 is next. Thor that'll 3. Be, that'll that's, be that's... a wonderful ensemble piece. <laughs> well, uh, Mark Ruffalo, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Pleasure. as an actor to play an archetype you know you are the foolish king yeah that, you know that's pretty much what you are i don't know if you were given a complex backstory i'm imagining not not but is that easier to do or more difficult it's just different i don't think it, i don't think it's easier or more difficult i think uh what you're looking for is the journey that that character goes on and how can i make that journey as interesting as possible for the for the for the viewer he has a big journey to go on this character in quite a limited amount of time. He has to learn a lesson and go through go through a sort of hell in a way. And there's enough scenes in that to to show that journey. Can I just ask you? Uh, I, I don't. I think it's probably not a spoiler because it comes quite early. Selma Hayek 
she <laughs> right she wants to get pregnant by eating the heart of a of a sea monster yes and we see her do that yes and it it looks like the heart of a sea monster yes do you know what it is it's the heart of a sea monster is it yeah really mm. okay well, that was great. That was a good line of question. It looks, I'm guessing that it's lamb. <laughs> right. Slowly roasted, or possibly... Sea lamb. Or possibly pork, mm-hmm. sea pork. Sea pork. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you're not going to tell me anything else. Well, though. in Italy they have sea pork, but I can't tell you where to get it. Um, okay, well, Toby, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Can I ask you about uh, um, Sherlock? Because I think you're currently filming... Uh, yep, alongside right Mr. Cumberbatch. Mr. Cumberbatch Mr. is definitely there. Mr. Freeman is definitely there. What is what is your role? Can you tell Obviously, us? I have to be very careful what I say here, but I can tell you that I'm not necessarily on their side. Hmm. So you're a baddie. Yep. Are you a real baddie? Are you truly nasty? I'm on the brink of being nastier than I can possibly imagine. <laughs> Good morning, Mr Blake. I'm appointed to carry out assessments for employment and support allowance. Can you walk more than 50 metres? Yes. Can you raise either arm as if to put something in your top pocket? Yes. Can I ask you a question? Are you medically qualified? I've had a major heart attack. I've been told by my doctor I'm not supposed to go back to work yet. I'm afraid you must continue to look for work or your benefit payments will be frozen. You obviously, you know what you're going to get when you get a Ken Loach film. You're going to get something which, you know, is, is personal but also definitely has a political underpinning. And this is a film in which the one of the arguments of it is is that bureaucratic inefficiency is not accidental. It is being used as a political weapon to basically put people off attempting to claim benefits which are legitimately theirs. Uh, the script is by Paul Laverty, who's a writer I admire very much, and it's based, as with so much of his work, on uh, first-hand research, and it definitely has the ring of truth about it. It has two fantastic central performances by uh, Hayley Squires and Dave Johns, who absolutely bring these two characters of Katie and Daniel Blake to life, as two people who are caught in the cogs of a system which is attempting to reduce everybody to numbers, which is attempting to completely depersonalise everything, which is effectively attempting to alienate everybody so much that they just give up but what makes the film as powerful as it is is the sense of community that exists alongside this so on the one hand you have this kind of faceless mechanism which as i said ken loach has a very clear kind of political argument about the faceless mechanism on the other hand what you have is people who ha- who have uh, very little uh, in terms of uh, wealth looking after each other, looking out for each other, helping each other. You have social bonds that appear to be unbreakable. What happens is that Daniel Blake takes Katie under his wing and he starts to use the skills that he has as a carpenter to do up her house, to help with her kids, because she wants to go back to the Open University. She wants to go, as she refers it, back to to her books. All he wants to do is to recover because he's been told by his doctors that he absolutely cannot work because he's not well enough, but he's been told by a, by a faceless healthcare official that he is well enough and doesn't have enough points, 12 rather than 15. So you get this sense of people caught in a Kafkaesque situation um, in which there is nobody treating them as people, and yet they are all treating each other with respect, with dignity, with kindness, with caring. 
And the thing I loved about the film is it is it's it's a tragic comic drama. It's one point uh, Daniel Blake describes the, the the situation as a monumental farce, and that's the phrase which rings all the way through it. It's uh, shot by Robbie Ryan, who uh, keeps keeps everything very naturalistic and also sort of keeps a respectful distance when necessary, but gives you exactly the right amount of intimacy with the characters. There is a scene in it which has been written about uh, ever since the film first played at Cannes, which is a scene set in a food bank, which is one of the most, and I, I say this advisedly, one of the most moving things I have ever seen in the cinema. I've seen the film twice now, and both times it has reduced me to just not just floods of tears because it is tears, but also it is shot with intelligence, with compassion. It is brilliantly orchestrated. The camera is at exactly the right distance for the film, for it to have the impact that it's meant to have. And it becomes a sort of silent scream of rage about people being reduced and humiliated by circumstance, which is so transparently unjustified and undignified. I've seen it before. Good people on the street. He could lose everything. Well, I'm not going to give up. When you lose your self-respect, you're done for. Mark's review of I, Daniel Blake. It's Mark Kermit and Simon Mayer with our best of 2016 Cobbled Together clip show on BBC Radio 5 Live. Remember not to text because everything is on tape or the digital equivalent. Uh, coming up next, Meryl Streep, David Yellowo, and my review of London Has Fallen, complete with Effity Jefferties. And we kick off with Mark giving his verdict on criminal. See what you did there. Very good. Chopper, damn it. You are cleared for approach. Jericho Stewart. He's in and out of prison more than half his life. He's got no impulse control. He's unable to calculate the consequences of his actions. So you remember uh, there was that film last year called Selfless, in which Ben Kingsley had his brain splanted, or his soul splanted, into the body of Ryan Reynolds because he was on the way out and they needed to do it. So he said, Ryan Reynolds is an empty vessel. <laughs> no. <laughs> into which your soul can be splanted. So he is. And then, surprisingly enough, he he finds out that he's not an empty vessel at all. It's that's actually sort of like um like like that film. What's he full of then? Well, he's full of Ryan Reynolds. Is he really? <laughs> he is. Who knew there was so much? And people filled their own. Yeah. Well, now, okay, now we have criminals. So the story is at the beginning. Ryan Reynolds is splanted into the body of Kevin Costner, who's the empty vessel. That Kevin would be a challenge. Kevin Costner's empty vesseldon is explained away by the fact that he is a hardened crim who does not feel any emotions. Neither He doesn't know good nor bad nor nothing. He's just terribly hard. And uh, they need to, because Ryan Reynolds knows all this stuff, it's kind of, there's a nuclear thing, there's a character, there's a Spanish anarchist and a bloke called the Dutchman, really. And uh, they it's have to get... End well with no, it. they have to get Ryan Reynolds' stuff and his brain into Kevin Costner's empty brain. And they get it into Kevin Costner's empty brain. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones is the surgeon who does the operation. And Gary Oldman is the CIA chief who decides very early on, having woken Kevin up from his brain-splanting operation, that he'll start shouting at the end of this clip and then won't stop for the rest of the movie. Your name is Bill Pope. I'm sick, Doc. I need some kind of shot. I need something to say. Don't look at him. He can't help you. Only you can help him. Your name is Bill Pope. You're an intelligence officer with the CIA. Intelligence? My head. Aspirin is not good for you, but this will help. 
Billy, we had orders to put a bullet in the Dutchman's head. Right? But you forced oh. the play because you thought you could trust him. You thought you could pay him off. Billy! Where did you put him? Remember! Remember! Somebody else. And Gary Oldman spends the rest of the movie doing that. Every line shouted, no matter what. He just does that the whole time. Meanwhile, Kevin Costner goes on the rampage around... Well, you would. You would, wouldn't you? Being shouted at. Yeah, exactly. He he goes uh, running around uh, the sites of Merry London, where he quite genuinely meets meets and beats up a bunch of people um, who say... God blimey, that's bang out of order. And no mistake in Mary Poppins. Here they come. He goes to a kebab shop and he has a kebab and then he gets in a cab with a ke- the cab driver virtually says, I'm not going south of the river this time of the night. And um, then... Did they go on the rooftops? Actually, no, they missed a trick there. A little bit of chim. They, did, they didn't chim chim and chim action. But yeah, anyway, it's utter rubbish. Uh, and not enjoyable rubbish, as it turns out. It's quite boring. The, some, the best reviews I've read of it, um, you know, the most positive reviews, go, well, it's rubbish, but it's kind of, you know, it's not, it, it, it's entertainingly terrible. No, it's not. It's got Gary Oldman doing the give me the check performance. It's got Tommy Lee Jones looking more saddle baggy than ever. I'm sure pinching himself between sit going, why, why, what am I, why am I here? What on earth is this about? It's got Kevin Costner on Kevin Costner attempting to, uh, to portray through the sheer strength of his facial maneuvers, the struggle, the struggle of a sort of psychotic criminal with Ryan Reynolds in his head. Hmm. Gal Gadot turns up and basically turns up to go, Hi. Oh, does she? Yeah. I might go into one. Yeah. I know I'm shallow, but yeah, shallow is a nice word for what you are. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a cameo. Appearance. What, what word would you use then? Shallow. And then there's a cameo appearance by Piers Morgan as Piers oh, Morgan. No, and, well, we know we know how movies with Piers Morgan in end up. Yeah. The last one was Entourage. Yep. Okay, is this, worse, <laughs> is this better than Entourage or worse? Oh yeah, but you know, I mean, most things in the world What's are better Piers than Morgan Entourage. Piers Morgan doing in it? Being Piers Morgan. He's like Target, is he? Pardon me? Is he a Target? No. Oh. No, he's Piers Morgan interviewing the Spanish anarchist. Okay. <laughs> this sounds ludicrous. Yeah. Is it but, not, no, but not entertainingly ludicrous, oh, okay. just rubbishly ludicrous. I mean, rubbishly, rubbishly, rubbishly ludicrous. I am genuinely, I wrote this line down. I'm not making this up. There is genuinely a bit when a bloke goes, Oi, that's bang out of order. I'm so excited. We're going to make a recording. It's wonderful, Bunny. It's an astonishing story. I've been aware of Florence Foster Jenkins because the BBC Record Library is vast and extensive, and and I'd listened to the record many, many years ago. I've heard it, and it's the that's recording at Carnegie Hall, and it is astonishing. But it's a comedy record because the singing is so poor. So when when people applauded. What what were they applauding, do you think? Well, you know, this is a very interesting question because I, I don't think... We've all heard people sing badly. You go to any karaoke club and you hear people sing badly. You don't want to stay for more than one five-second segment. But I think part of what 
bought her um, her audience was her love of it. I mean, it was the true love of an amateur for the thing itself. And it wasn't how bad she was. It was how close she came to almost being okay. <laughs> and then when it would go wildly off, that was what was funny. And so interestingly, I, I when I prepared, I tried to... I asked my friend Audra McDonald for her singing teacher, and she gave me Arthur Levy. He, he, and he really taught me the arias, and I tried to sing them as well as I could. They're very difficult. Yes. Well, she picked... It wasn't as though she picked a few easy songs to sing. No. She went for the most difficult arias it's possible to perform. Absolutely. She did the Lacme, the Libre, you know, Uva la jeune endure, and she did um, Queen of the Night... Mozart, she did all these really, really tough coloratura things. And she was, she almost made it up the mountain several times. But then her foot would slip. And, um, but I think people loved seeing her um, honest enjoyment of it. She adored being center stage. But how was it possible for someone who, as you say, loved music, mm. was immersed in music, spent a lot of money on music, um, was responsible for Toscanini's uh, performance, which, which you mentioned, how is it possible for her to get to that point and then not realize that she's terrible? Well, I think she was musical when she, I mean, she did, was a, mu- a, a piano prodigy when she was eight years old. She did play at the White House and... Then she um, had some nerve damage in her left hand. She couldn't be a pianist anymore. She heard music the way it should be done, and, and she was an appreciator. But once I heard a, a recording of George Gershwin playing along and singing along with his own work, and if you've ever heard that recording, it's interesting. Because he's, uh, he's, off, he's, he's off the pitch. In his head, we... We imagine that George Gershwin knew what the pitch was, but what maybe people hear in their heads and what actually comes out of their mouths is sometimes different. Because I, I ended the movie, one, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, it's, mm. a wonder, it's beautifully told, um, but it's a sad movie, mm. and, and I thought that she maybe was, a, despite everything, was actually a sad woman. And I wondered also if... Because she was rich and successful, we say eccentric, but I wonder if maybe she had mental health issues. I don't, I don't know. How did, how did it feel to you? Well, she did. I mean, she lived for 50 years with syphilis. And uh, all the, the... There was a, a... The remedy at that time was something called salvarsan, and it was a um, mixture of mercury and arsenic. And she took it every day. Actually, she bathed in it. Um, so, yes, at one of the... It, it could be. The real Fo- Florence Foster Jenkins, I'm not sure how much of that is germane to our story. So much of our story is a suggestion of what, of what the truth is and what reality is and how we make it within our own heads because and within our own affections and our affect, uh, the the love that surrounds her not just from her husband but from her audiences who generally 
loved hearing her. Yes. I wonder if she was deluded. Well, love is a delusion, often. (laughs) But what we see is her... A beautiful one, and one, you know, upon which the world is predicated in much poetry. But it can be... But we don't don't stand up um, uh, at the Carnegie Hall and, and sing... And have that interesting relationship with Hugh Grant, and you know what? I just wondered if she just she clearly just saw the world in a different way, Marilyn. Yes, she perhaps saw the world in a different way. I think that's a very good way of of putting it. That uh, there are some people who see the glass half full, and some who see it the other way. No, no, Fiona, never tip your king so quick, eh? Why not, when you're going to be beaten anyway? Focus on what you have. Coach, I think you don't come from here. When I was a child, my mother left me. In that moment, I wanted to die. But it is a good thing I did not take my life, eh? Otherwise, I would not have seen my daughter. I would not have met the pioneers. Or you? Me? Do not be quick to tip your king, Fiona. You must never surrender. And that's a clip from The Queen of Katwe. It stars David Oyelowo. David, welcome to the programme. Nice to see you again, sir. Thank you. Uh, I had a, a, a day last week when I saw two David Oyelowo films <laughs> in the space of hours. Lucky for you. <laughs> no, no, it was great. I mean, uh, you know, and terrific. And we'll... And we'll, we'll Talk about the Amarasanti movie just a bit later on, but Queen of Catway is your is your movie, which is out this week. Just tell us who the Queen is and tell us where Catway is. Um, yes, well, where Catway is is Uganda, and and Katway is a, a slum in Uganda where the Queen comes from. Fiona Mutesi, who, when we first meet her, is a ten year old girl selling corn on the streets of Katway, and is discovered to have a prodigious chess playing talent by the character I play, Robert Katende, who um, teaches chess and uh, who guides her towards becoming a champion. There you go. That sounds like an answer you might have given before. It's as succinct as I've ever done it. <laughs> it is. So, uh, you you no, catch that's... me in a good moment. No, 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 that's very good. Tell us about her, though, because I understand it's her first picture. She, and she is remarkable. Obviously, all these kind of pictures, they do revolve around finding someone who is enormously engaging and passionate. And we find her so at the big... What an interesting stage she is because she's just sort of... She doesn't really realise how smart and intelligent she is, does she? Yeah, well, you know, and and that really reflects the discovery of Medina, Medina who plays Fiona in the film. Fiona Mutesi, the character Medina portrays, as I say, is is discovered to have this talent and, and, you know, goes on to find expression for that. But Medina, who plays her hasn't acted for the screen before, hasn't acted before, was discovered in a dance troupe in, wow. in, in Katwe, Uganda, and does things in this film that I just don't think you should be able to do. If you, like what? Well, there is a stillness that she has that... Um, it, in my experience, comes with confidence and experience. There is a listening ability she has, whereby she doesn't feel a need to project her listening. There is a subtlety she has in the performance she gives that is very, very mature. And I guess she is living proof that, you know, some people just have it. You know, that's what I felt while we were shooting it, and it's definitely how I feel now that I see the film. I don't think I've seen 
a film, certainly not a film which starts with Disney coming up at the beginning, which is based entirely in Africa. Right. Where you're exactly as you say, there's not a scene where right. Let's go to America now and explain it to the to the to the Great West. It just is an it's it's an African story from start to finish, and I can't remember the last time I saw that. It's probably because it doesn't exist, uh, you know. Because not only uh, do we not switch over to America, but we also don't have an outsider uh, as a character who is supposed to bring a perspective that uh, a Western audience uh, is their way into the film, so to speak. We rely entirely on an insider perspective. We rely entirely on the people who are indigenous to this community, and we have the confidence to to trust that their perspective is one that can be related to by people who are not necessarily from Uganda. I think that's a wonderful shift and something that is really paying huge dividends with audiences. And the um, the fact that it starts with Disney coming up right at the very beginning gives you a because you're telling a street story because you're telling a story about a street family living in a shanty town or a slum and um, and there are dangerous people around there mm. obviously but it gives you a, it really adds to the enjoyment because you relax from because you go okay it's right. going to be it's going to be tough this is a real story but mm. it's not going to be too tough. I mean, not even like Slumdog, you know, which obviously had some pretty tough scenes in it. Well, you know, I think it's twofold because, yes, that logo coming up sort of relaxes you and you think, okay, I'm not about to see anything too edgy. But the the other side of it is that actually there is some some stuff smuggled in there. You know, you, you, the, the, you we don't shy away from the poverty. We don't shy away from the challenge. We don't shy away from the issue of teenage pregnancy. You know, these are not the normal things you would find in a Disney movie. And that's because, again, the perspective from which this is told. Someone who is from that community, the bulk of the people in the film are, are people who live in that community. So telling uh, telling some kind of sugar-coated version of it just would not uh, go down well with them. Ugandans are very direct. They will let you know exactly how they feel. And so, you know, I think, yes, it, it relaxes you, but it's also an opportunity to, to smuggle things in that are a bit more challenging. When you, when you say they're very direct and tell you what they feel, did they do that while you were filming? Did they say uh, oh, you, you can't do it like that or you should oh, be doing it differently. You know, I, I'm of Nigerian descent and, and uh, y- you know, so that that's my way into uh, anything that is generally speaking African and you cannot approach Africa generally. You know, the, the Ugandan accent is very different from the Nigerian accent and if I was remotely off, <laughs> I would know it uh, straight away and that that's a good thing because you want to get that right. I would just think I was going to mention the United Kingdom in a second, but in that movie, you're so you're from Bechuana land, so modern yes. day Botswana. That's right. What is the linguistically? What was the? Did they did these movies come together? Was it more difficult having done Botswana to go to you get to get those accents right? Is there a subtle difference? What what as an actor, what did you have to try and master? Oh yeah, it's a good question because we uh, shot Queen of Cartway first, and then with not much of a break, I went into a United Kingdom, and the accents are very different, especially as with Soretze Karma, who I play in a United Kingdom, it was a hybrid of a Botswana accent and he had lived in the UK for, for, for quite a while and he also had a little bit of that affected um, this is the BBC kind of mm-hmm. accent uh, that is sort of woven in there. So the nightmare for me is having shot 
uh, Queen of Cartway, we then did a United Kingdom, and then I had to do some looping for Queen of Cartway. So, you, you know, to be to be doing some sound recording for Queen of Cartway while doing a United Kingdom was just a mind-bender because the accents are very different, but, you know, if you're not really concentrating, you can sort of start uh, blending them, which would not be a good thing. Hell of a presidential race, sir. Every day the same damn joke. What the hell they make you out of? Bourbon and poor choices. With security at unprecedented levels, this isn't just a gathering of the world's most powerful leaders. It is the most protected event on Earth. Welcome to London, Mr. President. What's wrong? Nothing. Bugs the hell out of me. So you remember a few years ago, 2013, there were two movies that were basically the same film about the White House under attack, and they both came out in the same year. And one of them was Olympus Has Fallen with Shut Up Buttwad, and the other one was White House Down, which was a Roland Emmerich film. And as it turned out, White House Down was the much more fun of them. It was bigger, dumber, and more fun. Uh, I mean, it was completely stupid, but it was a film which seemed to understand how completely stupid it was and had fun with being completely stupid, as opposed to Olympus Has Fallen, which had that sort of... You never, if when there were when there were laughs in it, and I didn't think there were that many. You you couldn't quite figure out whether they were whether they were deliberate or knowing or not. Well, so now the formula uh, comes to uh, to London. Olympus has fallen. Uh, This time it's uh, it's an attack on London, which according to a news report, it said uh, most of the known landmarks of the capital have been decimated. And I'm sitting there going, I, I, even beginning to unravel the grammatical inconsistencies. of the, So most of the known landmarks, so all the unknown landmarks, you know, all those na- landmarks right. that nobody knows about, they're fine. And they've been decimated means they've been reduced by one-tenth. So anyway, the whole kind of flag-waving thing. Then uh, British PM dies. Uh, all the dignitaries of the world have to get together in London. And suddenly there's a massive, massive terrorist outbreak which blows up everything. It blows up everything. I mean, all the, all the as we just know, all the known most of the known landmarks. <laughs> the unknown landmarks, they're, they're, they're in the clear. <clears throat> Croydon's all right then. Yeah. That's right, Highgate Cemetery, you know, those things. Um, but uh, then uh, uh, the, the, the Prez is on the ground again, and it's just him, Gerard, to get him and the thing, and to look up and get away from it. So uh, I'd like to talk you through the dialogue, but it would be almost impossible because the effing and jeffing makes it all completely, uh, completely unrepeatable. But essentially, it's that, you know, uh, these, uh, these annoying... These annoying people from foreign countries, which we call foreign countryistan, except with that's not how he says it, are doing lots of stuff, and the only thing we can do is and just do them and just get them and and it's and efforty jefferty efforty jefferty blah 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 crashy crashy punchy smashy shooty efforty jefferty efforty jefferty crashy crashy and then Gerard going doing the Gerard Butler thing and meanwhile while London is falling apart. It's, what's brilliant about it is that it appears to be falling apart on the Doctor Who special effects budget. You know those uh, programs that you get where you can make explosions appear on a computer screen? Yeah. So like, yeah, fine. So it's that... You can do it on an app. You can, yeah. Well, they appear to have done the explosions for this on an app, as they also appear to have done the, the whirlycopter dogfights on an app, and they also appear to have written all of the dialogue on an app, which said, insert 
Efforty Jefferty, general, all-purpose, Americans great, everybody else, bunch of sissies. And, oh, incidentally, uh, there's, uh, the, the way that the whole thing starts off is that all the British cops, they're not British cops, they're all... They're all, you know, what? well, they're all the other lot, but they just dress up that because that's the brilliant way they got around the British Secret Service. They're on top of it, but they didn't notice. They didn't notice that most of the policemen are baddies yeah, dressed up as policemen. So the police are efforty jefferties. No, no. Well, they are because they've but they're not police. And there is actually a line when, when he says they're not efforty jefferty polices. They're, they're, they're not. This is a kid's film. It's. You know, it it's it is utterly terrible. It's very boring. The special effects are, I mean, the special effects are shrieking, juicingly cheap. I mean, I I, I promise you, you have played uh, Game Boys that have got better special effects than in this. Game Boys, wow, there's a there's a yeah, no, that's what I mean. I mean, I'm not even talking like a modern, you know, 3D blah blah. blah. I'm talking about Game Boys had special effects that were better than the special effects in this. It's utterly meat-headed. It's like. Team America World Police without the jokes and with more wooden acting. I mean, at one point, I did actually expect them to burst into the song from Team America World Police, you know, America, Efforty, Jefferty, yeah. You know, I did I, it because, without the irony, without the gags. It's also pretty dull. Um, I did at one point find myself being shouted to sleep by Shut Up But What because he was doing a whole sequence which was just in I love it and I was just I just and then I suddenly was was jolted back into consciousness because he stopped and the silence woke me up it's rubbish it's rubbish it's not fun rubbish it's not like you know it's not like White House Down fun rubbish it's just rubbish. It's meat-headed rubbish. Oh, my God. That was Mark's review of London Has Fallen, which lots of you asked to hear again for no apparent reason. There's another hour of top 2016 movie highlights still to come, including... Amy Adams, Jodie Foster, The Jungle Book and Independence Day Resurgence. Welcome to Hour 2 of what we're calling the best of Kermit and Mayo 2016. Coming up in this bit, Jodie Foster and John Favreau. Plus, my review of Gods of Egypt and, who could forget, our warm and convivial chat with Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, in which we learnt the important lesson about how movies work. (laughs) Uh, Worth hearing that again. So it's obviously a recorded show. I mean, who's going to come in now? So please don't waste your money sending in texts and that kind of thing. What is it to be human? What is it to ache? What is it to be alive? Each person you speak to has had a day. Some of the days have been good, some bad. Each person you speak to has had a childhood. Each has a body. Each body has aches. Did you like Inside Out? Because I have to confess I did. I loved it. Look for what is special um, about each individual. Google, you want to feel that one? I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Pixar in yeah. general. I um, I didn't, this one didn't, uh, it, it wasn't a standout for me. Okay. What's your favorite Pixar? I like Finding Nemo a lot. Cool. Okay, so, so you're still, anyway, an Oscar nomination for your animation, uh, given uh, 
how long this story has been is still an extraordinary achievement. Tell us, tell us the story of, uh, of, of what we see on the screen. Tell us the story about the movie. Like what the story is of the film or the story, the story of making the film? We're going to do both and we can do it in any order that you like. Well, uh, the story of making the film, I can say uh, um, Charlie did it as a, uh, as a play, a performance piece uh, of audio in 2005. Do you want to tell that story, actually? I mean, it was, a, it was what we call a sound play. We actually, did, um, we actually did them in London at the Royal Festival Hall. Um, Carter Burwell did the music. Coen Brothers wrote one and I wrote one. And we performed those in New York and London. And then um, I wanted to go to Los Angeles with it and the Coens couldn't. So I wrote a second one. And that was Anomalisa, and we performed that at Royce Hall in Los Angeles. And this essentially was like a radio, radio play, wasn't it? Well, it was a radio play, but it was staged. I mean, we weren't calling them radio plays because it wasn't for the radio. It was it was um, on stage with a Foley artist, with um, musicians and Carter uh, conducting. The actors were reading the scripts, and it was designed. It was designed to be seen, but what you were seeing was not what you were hearing. Whereas a radio play is designed not to be seen, there was a disconnect between what you were seeing and what you were hearing that was part of the performance. Okay. So we'll just hold that story. When we, and if we came along to that sound play, mm-hmm. what was the story that we saw told? It's about a man who is um, kind of a celebrity in the field of customer service, and he's written a book, and he's coming to Cincinnati to a convention of customer service representatives to deliver a speech. And he meets a woman there, and they embark on a kind of a, uh, an affair. And it takes place over a weekend. Okay. And why customer service, just out of interest? I mean, who knows why I do anything? Um, I really don't know. It, I, I, I spent a lot of time working in customer service when I was young. So probably it was a thing that I felt like I, I could know and, and write about with some authority. Why did you, just and going back to the original sound play, you chose those three actors for, for what reason? I love those three actors. So I chose those three actors. I mean, I asked them and they said yes. I did another. The other play I did was with Meryl Streep and Hope Davis and Peter Dinklage for the same reason. I just wanted to work with people I wanted to work with. Um, so so many years later, when they get a call saying we're, gonna, we're doing it again uh, as an animation, they must have forgotten all about it or they must have thought, wow, we're going to do this. This is fantastic. I don't think they forgot about it. Jennifer loved doing this play. I mean, I think David and Tom did as well, but I mean, Jennifer loved it to the point where she wanted to continue doing it. We only got to do two performances. So she was kind of really thrilled to revisit it. And, you know, David and Tom were, were happy to come back. They didn't forget it. We had a day of rehearsal after however many years it was, and we recorded it and it worked out really well, two days of recording. Can you, uh, and do, can you just explain the process whereby you put this together and what it was like and what the, you know, the set in inverted commas was like, just how you piece together a movie like Anomalies. Well, we had um, 18 stages on a, in, in a big warehouse in Burbank and um, each stage had a set in it. Um, the, the scale of, of the, the puppets in the world is one sixth scale. So the character of Michael is 12 inches tall, which is the equivalent of six feet tall in this world and everything is sort of proportionate to him so basically we had 13 animators 18 stages and animators are you know moving these puppets one frame at a time uh with a goal of uh shooting two seconds of animation per animator per day 
And what uh, what, are you, what cameras are you using to do it? Because, I mean, I've seen stuff with um, animation being shot with, with stills cameras. Are you using uh, uh, digital cameras or...? How- yeah, it is It is um, Canon DSLR cameras with Nikon lenses, but it's, it's still frames because the resolution is 5K for a still image because it's actually, you know, nothing moves in the movie. It's, it's just a series of static images creating the illusion of movement over time. Yeah. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the detour so simple? 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 Watch my mouth. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Keep your head still. Would the detour so simple? Would the detours so simple? Would the so simple? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence? Hmm? I thought a minute ago it was Lawrence. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you, Herbie. Okay. So, would the detours so simple? Would the detours so simple? Would the detours so simple? Trippingly. Would the detours so simple? Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. Now, look, well, now, now you try. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how many times I hear that because that's that was the second trailer for the film was basically that scene, and I laughed at it the first time around because basically, you know, it's it's the Gene Hogg and Kathleen Freeman uh, routine from uh, Singing in the Rain, and I can't stand him. I can't stand him. Can't stand. Him. Can't. Can't. And it's it's a riff on that, and. I think in a way it's a kind of it's a perfect indicator of how much you're going to like Hail Caesar is whether or not you find that a little bit annoying whether or not you find that absolutely funny. Uh what I loved about Hail Caesar there was a review of it that I I was quite surprised by a review in a, a, an American paper that had said that Hail Caesar was a movie that demonstrated how much the Coen brothers hate the movie industry. And it seemed to me to be completely the opposite of that. It is a film that is full of affection, full of laughs. I mean on the solid laugh scale I laughed pretty much all the way through. But I also grinned because I loved the aquatic dance routines. I loved the tap dancing, hoofing kind of on the town South Pacific numbers. I loved Hobie doing his singing cowboy Lazy Old Moon song. I mean, essentially, the plot is like something that the dude would have dreamed up having woken up from a particularly, uh, you know, having woken up, having enjoyed uh, several several herbs. And the pot is all over the place and totally ramshackle and utterly ludicrous. And it would be fairly intolerable were it not for the fact that it's so consistently, affectionately funny. I can imagine some people would lose patience with it in the same way that, you know, I've... It took me a lot of runs to get into The Big Lebowski because I just thought it was too kind of zany for its own good. But this isn't zany to me. This is this is goofy. What's the difference between zany and goofy? Zany is trying too hard. Goofy is actually working. Is wacky in there? I don't like wacky. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing about the Coens... Did you agree with any of that? All of it. Thank you. The thing about the Coens is that uh, they kind of really enjoyed being on the show. <laughs> And if they became available, we'd have them again. That's not just, and that's not true of everybody. Just saying. You, apparently, we can hear a bit of Tatum Channing and Channing Tatum's song. Can we? Which, which one would you like to hear? To see, and however it'll be, it ain't gonna be the same. Cause no matter what we see when we're out there on the sea. We ain't gonna see a dame 
We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below. But it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't gonna see a day. No day. We might see some octopuses. No day. Or a half a dozen clams. No day. We might even see a boy made, but boy has got no hair. I think that's right. <laughs> you loved it, didn't you? Yeah, no, I thought it was. I thought it was absolutely terrific. I didn't really know anything about it, and I do think when people go and see it, they'll see George Clooney. I, for me, he was just looking. He looked like Buzz Lightyear throughout the whole. Yeah, you said of, that. Yeah, there's a, there's a fantastic moment. I don't want to. I mean, I. I I want to repeat all the jokes, but I don't want to repeat all the jokes. But there's a fantastic moment, which I probably in the trailer, because almost half the film's in the trailer, when George Clooney has to do this, the responding to the divine presence. You know, he has to look, he has to do the look, and it is definitely um, John Wayne in The Greatest Story Ever Told. What did it were so soon? Oh. Cut the feed. Whoever's in there, turn the cameras on. Turn the cameras on, Patty. Turn them on, Patty. Turn them on. Put it up. Take it out, put it on. And I know it won't blow up, because I have the detonator. My thumb comes off this trigger, and we all explode. Is this the most ambitious film you've done? I think this is technically the most ambitious movie. As a director. Movie. Yeah, as a director, it's technically the most ambitious movie I've ever done. Um, it's a big jigsaw puzzle, and I honestly i am not sure that the audience will notice, because um, because the seams are so finely woven. Um, uh, a, a movie that happens in real time. Uh, so it happens in over the course of two hours, and the movie is an hour and a half long, um, virtually in real time, uh, where you have one event that's being broadcast on. There's four different cameras that are capturing it, uh, broadcast cameras, and then there's a film camera, and then you have monitors in the control room, and you have monitors everywhere in the world that's watching it, including the command unit where the police are and different coffee shops in Korea and South Africa and Iceland, all over the world. Um, but we film a movie over the course of, you know, 45 to 50 days. And to figure all of that out, where are you going to be? What edit? You had to figure out the editing before you even started the film. Hmm. Here's the thing, Jody. We spend a lot of time on this uh, on this show talking about movies, almost all of them kicking in at two hours and 45 yes. minutes. It's, yes. it's the new normal. Yes. And we've often said that very few movies could be would suffer if they had 30 minutes taken away from right. them. I'm with you. I, I like you short make short, movies. You, but you make short movies. Now, this is a movie, as, you, as you've mentioned, it's 90 minutes. That's right. How is that even possible? Oh, it could have been shorter. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> extending my movies, um, you know, with credits because I, I find it very hard to meet the hour and a half length. I like very verbal films, and I like films that are fast-paced and that make you think and that have intricate uh, weavings of character and plot. So, yeah, I have no desire to make long movies. I like watching them sometimes, epics. Uh, it's worthwhile to have that experience, but um, it's just not my voice as a filmmaker. Well, I'm intrigued about is that, I mean, I checked it afterwards, you know, that it is 90 minutes because it doesn't feel like a 90-minute movie. There's an awful lot going on you know it's there's lots of words it's a very complicated movie that has a lot of different layers and um you know i embrace that i like that and and there are plenty of times where people uh people were worried about that you know they like their genres nice and tidy they like to have a film that's just a thriller or a film that's just a comedy or or that's all emotional i believe that our lives are rich and um i have a lot to say <laughs> I, I talk a lot and i have a lot to say and um, I feel a lot as well, and I just don't feel as a filmmaker that I have to choose between the two. 
And when you have a lot to say, do you think, uh, I mean, because you've uh, directed House of Cards, an episode, yes. and mm-hmm. uh, Orange, Orange is the New, New Black, Black, which is, you know, what a fantastic series that was, and the book was was terrific. Right. D- does TV appeal just as much if you've got a lot to say? Is that a, uh, an easier and quicker, and you know, if you want to make... 60 minute films, you're going to end up in television. Well, I like television because it's fast. It's fast paced, and that's, you know, it's easy for me to work in that milieu. And I get to work in all sorts. I can, I can do a thriller, I can do a comedy, I can do dramedy, I can do, you know, all sorts of things on television and then jump back and forth between them. Um, but it's not a, the same investment unless you're exec producing as well. So as a director on television, you're more for hire. You're coming in to execute and to serve uh, the vision of someone else. So. You know, I like going back and forth between the two, but features allow you to have the film be entirely your vision, uh, entirely your signature that's about the things that you find meaningful. Sorry, was that word you used, dramedy? Dramedy, yes. Is that is that a thing? Is, is, does it exist or did I just make it up? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of know. I understand what you're saying. Anyway, so It does exist, and uh, it's something that I do in all my movies. I can't seem to tell a story that's meaningful or personal to me without laughing at it. Um, and I also, you know, like dramatic things that happen. So I, I have to do a combination of both. And lots of people, myself included, struggle with that tone because um, you have to figure out how to keep the audience moved and with your characters in terms of the drama, but you also have to figure out where you can fit in the comedy so it's not so broad that it doesn't distract from the drama. Ages have passed since the gods walked among us. Before the fury swept over our land. Before the war that divided us for eternity. You're not fit to be king. It's my turn now. Set has taken over Egypt enslaved its people. Only one God can save us, but not without his eyes. Steal from a God. Only a madman would try such a thing. Where do you suppose we could find someone so mad? Now, Gods of Egypt is at number three. Mm. Now, this, uh, I know because you are a completist, you made sure that you saw before yeah. uh, you went away yeah, yeah. last week. So, Well, it's awful beyond belief. I mean, it is really head-bangingly terrible. And the, the, the awfulness of it was kind of made worse by the fact that Alex Proyas, who's the director, who's done some interesting stuff in the past, Dark City and, and The Crow, and, you know, he's not a terrible director. But he made this awful film. And then he took to social media to complain that all the critics who hated it only hated it because they were basically the, the phrase that he used was that they were diseased vultures pecking on a dying carcass and uh, so he did this whole big rant about how all critics are evil which everyone always you know it's like the Kevin Smith thing you know when critics like your film they're great and then the minute they don't like your film then they're awful and so I actually went into Gods of Egypt wanting to find something to like because you know the critical uh, general feeling was that it wasn't any good and then five minutes in I thought oh no this is actually worse than you could possibly expect it's a story in which everybody is speaking in an 
in an indecipherable, weird sort of parody of British accent, except for Gerard Butler, who has decided to do Gerard Butler, because he's obviously read the script, thought the only way I'm going to get through this is I'm simply going to do Gerard Butler. Um, we have Geoffrey Rush out in space as Ra the Sun God uh, on a spaceship uh, having a battle with, uh, with various uh, spacey things. We have, you know, uh, gods who are tall and normal people who are less tall, although the difference between how tall the normal people are and the gods are is never quite decided. We have terrible CGI effects that are so badly I mean honestly Warcraft is really effectively done in terms of the special effects <laughs> you look at, at Gods of Egypt you just go, really? People signed off on those effects? They went, yeah that's fine that'll go out in cinemas, that'll be absolutely terrific well done, well done Alex, you've done it again you've excelled yourself I mean it's stupid and incoherent, which is fine, but the problem was it's incredibly dull. And what James argues is that actually he enjoyed it. He thought it was one of those films that's so bad, it's good. And I I appreciate the fact that he enjoyed it. I, all I can tell you is I was bored to tears, so much so that I actually tried to go to sleep and couldn't because it was too annoying. Not too loud, or oh, it was, yeah. I mean, but the, 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 you know, you, you can you, just because if it's something's consistently loud, like the, the entire earth of Michael Bay, it just becomes like background noise. But it was just like I just thought, like, this is so long and so tedious. But every other second, something so fantastically stupid happened that it kept me awake, but not kept me awake in a oh, this is jolly, this is fun kind of way, but in a oh, really, you know. And as I said, all with the background noise of Alex Preuss getting off his bike about having got bad reviews for it. Believe me, Alex, the reviews to that film were kind. We should run. Run? We mortals do it all the time! Are you alone out here? What are you doing so deep in the jungle? Why did you decide? You mentioned about deciding not to Im make the animals emote too much. Why? Yeah. Why did you decide that? It starts to. I, I'm very uh, reticent about the use of CGI, which is, sounds funny because I made a, a movie that's completely computer rendered here, other than the kid. But part of why I think I've had success in the past on on, on films like Iron Man and and the effects have looked good is because I've never asked too much of the effects. And when you ask things to behave in a way that they don't in nature, it starts to make things look fake, even if they're well executed. And so creating parameters to create a sense of naturalism to this version of the Jungle Book was important to me. Iron Man was 2008, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. This movie wouldn't have been possible then, would it? No, no. I was just becoming comfortable with rendering hard surfaces like um, metal, like a suit. Uh, it's always easier to do things that are that are metallic rather than fur and flesh. Uh, but they had asked me uh, originally to, to do uh, the Hulk uh, as one of the choices because if you remember, Marvel had two titles in their first wave. One was Iron Man, one was the Incredible Hulk. And I didn't feel the technology was there for the Hulk yet. And I was concerned about being able to do it convincingly. Uh, of course, it, you could CGI doesn't have to be perfect to tell a good story, but from my sensibility, I like it to be... I, I want to pull it off like a magic trick where it's indistinguishable. Can you explain... Uh, for those of us who've never played with these toys, what yeah. it is, what it is that has developed the kit that you were given yeah. last year and the, to assemble this extraordinary finished product. Well, it was a combination of technologies, but but the uh, the key partner here was a, a was a, a company right here in London called MPC, 
and they had, you know, uh, state-of-the-art tools. They developed some new tools to render things like fur and make the water behave in a believable way and have the little things like the skin move over the muscle in a believable way. Little things that, that tell your mind subconsciously that you're looking at something real. And so when you when you peel it down to its most simple layer, it's you're, you're generating an environment uh, much like a video game would, except it's finished to a much higher level of reality. And you're animating characters that are basically rigged digital puppets that the, the, the animators either use the reference of motion capture, which we did on this movie, to help drive the animation, or the performances uh, of the facial expressions of the actors, which also was incorporated into this. And it's a combination of the editor, uh, the people who are editing the footage, the people who are animating, the people who are art directing the background. And ultimately, these digital tools are serving the same purpose that in Walt Disney's days, you know, background painters would use or um, animators, ink and paint people who would who would use brushes and paint to do the same thing that we're using computers to do in a much more sophisticated way. But I can't impress enough. These are handmade films where these are all artists who are using these digital tools to help mm. – um, fool the audience into believing they're seeing something real. And you mentioned Walt Disney. Many people, including myself, would consider Jungle Book to be his greatest oh, wow. movie. Okay. There must have been a point where – it's not a scary question, by the way. Uh, you must have thought, uh, hmm, do I want to go here? Or was it an obvious choice for you? I, I wasn't scared of it. I don't think that – I certainly the studio didn't understand how um, significant of a legacy that film had. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it was because it was uh, 67 and a lot of us grew up with it. Um, because there's not that same level of preciousness taken with films like, um, you know, when they make Snow White and the Huntsman or, or Alice in Wonderland. They, they take a lot of liberties with the material. Uh, and even even uh, Cinderella, to some, to some extent, they took some liberties and definitely Maleficent. But with this one, people were very concerned about the music. They were very concerned about moments in it. And then there's also the Kipling, which was uh, uh, the source material that we, we leaned on as well, which is much different in tone and much different. Uh, they're different characters. It, uh, Walt Disney took a lot of liberty with the source material there. And if you just look at the, the, the children's version of the musical version of this film that we grew up with and you did that in live action, it wouldn't work. And so we had to make it a bit more... Of, a, of an adventure film and feel a little bit more in line with the older Disney animated classics and films like The Lion King where there was a real sense of danger. And so mixing that dangerous tone with the music and the humor, we, uh, we tried to stay consistent with the, with the Disney tradition but also include the things that we've grown to love like mm -hmm. the music and the humor and the personality of the characters from the original film. Did you always know which songs you were going to include? Was there ever a moment where you thought... Actually, we don't need the songs. It started off there was no there was no music when I was hired, and I felt that we had to work in. First, I got bare necessities in, and then the idea <laughs> of I want to be like you is there a way to with the menacing environment and scene and character that Christopher Walken plays with King yes. Louis was there going to be a way to work that music in too? And then, of course, we also wove in a lot of the music into the score. So if you're familiar with the film, you'll hear a lot of a lot of uh, tips of the hat to to the old the old themes and in the end credits we have a, a number of wonderful songs but but the challenge was how much music could you have without turning into a musical which would inevitably reduce the stakes and the sense of, of danger 
that I think is required to make a film of this size and scale that appeals to this broad of an audience. John Favreau, director of The Jungle Book, ending that section. What's in our final half hour, Mark? Well, Simon, uh, we'll hear from Amy Adams and Tom Hanks, plus we'll have my review of Jungle Book, very good, and uh, Dirty Grandpa, not very good. We'll look forward to that, particularly... Let's start with Mark on Independence Day Resurgence. My feeling about it is the absolute definition of the word meh. It's not great, it's not awful, it's just meh. Oh my God. Does that mean satisfactory? No, well, no, because satis- giving an Ofsted report. Satis- satisfactory would have been something that I mean. What happened was, as I was watching it, I started thinking of all the things that have happened that it reminded me of. So everything is in. So, for example, I mean, you said, for example, that close encounter style thing. Where it opens with the, the kind of you know coming in from outer space with radio signals, which reminded me of Contact. Then you get the sort of the spaceship designs, which when they're on the moon are kind of like you know UFO or Moon Base Alpha from Space 1999 with a little bit of 2001. Then you get the ominous skyscapes with the broiling clouds, which are very sort of post-Godzilla. Then you get the dogfights, which are absolutely straight out of Star Wars. Then you get the post-Avengers, you know, scenes of destruction and that sort of thing happening, which is very post-Avengers. Then you get the post-Alien aliens, and in fact the post-Aliens bigger alien. And there's just an awful feeling all the way through of having seen all of this before, and I don't just mean in Independence Day, I mean everywhere else. Now that said, there are pleasures to be had. The greatest pleasure, of course, being Jeff Goldblum, who isn't in the film enough as far as I'm concerned. I mean, frankly, I would have spent the whole film just staying with Jeff Goldblum's character, allowing him to do that weird thing that he does, which is talk as if, you know, somebody once said what Christopher Walken does when he gets any script is he puts it into a computer which takes out all the punctuation and then he just reads the words in in any... Well, you know Jeff Goldblum has that that cadence, the way in which Mm. Jeff Goldblum speaks. Well, it's lovely. Every minute it's on screen, it's lovely. But unfortunately, because there's so much other stuff going on, there isn't very much of it. It's very, mm, you know, it's okay. It's kind of fun. It's too long. It kind of doesn't have any coherence. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but that's fine. Um, it, it keeps referring back to itself and to other, you know, you know, particularly the gags about the landmarks and all that sort of stuff, but not in a way which is really sort of rip-roaringly sly or funny. It's just... Hmm. When life threw Alan Clay a curveball, he needed a fresh start. And you may find yourself looking for your large automobile. And you may find yourself without a beautiful house, without a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, how did I get here? So he's traveling halfway around the world for the deal of a lifetime. Sound like you're on the moon. No, I'm in Saudi Arabia. We're pitching a three-dimensional holographic meeting system to the king. And that is a clip from A Hologram for a King. It stars Tom Hanks. The last time you were, you came on the show was with Steven Spielberg talking about Bridges Spice, which kind of worked out quite well for you. Yeah, did good. And yeah. also Mr. Mark Rylance seemed to do just fine and dandy, didn't he? He did. See, yeah, yeah, he did. I remember, I remember making the movie and looking at Mark, and the second time he looked at me and said, well, would it help? I said, there goes the movie. I don't have this movie anymore. <laughs> this movie just became Mark Rylance's movie. Dad, dang it. And pe- people do quote that exchange as yeah. actually quite a, a profound 
moment, you know, you don't look worried. Would it help? Would it help? Yeah, yeah. it actually is. Yeah. Uh, and, when, and when you did that interview, you had white hair. Oh, yeah, you were, yeah. I think you'd been Sully. You were about to be Sully. You were in the process of being Sully. Where is that in the... Uh, uh, we finished the, that. We shot that with, uh, with Clint Eastwood. Uh, we finished that last November. Uh, actually, I saw a cut of it. Uh, just not... Clint's an Clint's Clint's interesting guy. You call him up on the phone. I called him on the phone. I said, hey, boss, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good. I said, uh, how's the movie going? It uh, came out well. Came out well. <laughs> and I said... Um, Anything I can do to help? I mean, he said, uh, actually, you know, uh, I'd like to show it to you in a week or two. <laughs> I said, whatever you want. But, and then I saw it, and I, I called him up. Hey, that turned out pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think it came out nice. So that's, uh, that's, that's dealing with Clint Eastwood. What you're saying is he's exactly the same on the phone he as is, he is in the movies. You know, as a matter of fact, I had a meeting with him, and I was talking to him about ideas of what to do. And he had the look on his face that was literally... Make my day, punk. You know, you're feeling like he was he was scowling at me. He was squinting at me. And I thought, have I just said something that's going to get me shot? And it turns out that's that's just the way he ponders things with that. You feel lucky, punk. (laughs) Did you make his day? I did make his day. I think I, I, geez, I hope so. Can you, can you reassure, can, can you tell us anything about Toy Story 4 and, and, and people who think you met, you were part of maybe the greatest trilogy in movie history? We have already recorded yes. uh, some sections of Toy Story 4. Tell us it's great. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get to see that. They now keep this like secret, you know, that I only really am. They used to have an entire script like a regular movie. Then they just started showing us the storyboards. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And then once they showed us an animatic on the third movie, they actually put us all together in a room and we watched an animatic with scratch, uh, scratch dialogue. Uh, Jeff and we saw the whole movie before we recorded a single word of it. Now they just show us the stuff that we're in and they keep everything else like sort of top secret. So I've, I've gone on and I've worked alone and I've worked with Annie Potts who plays Bo Peep. Um, and these, the thing is that the animated movies, they take about three and a half years to make. You go in about every six months and do a little bit of work. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely in the process and will be out soon. And what's funny is, is that there are now grown-ups with their own kids that were young when they saw the first Toy Story. And um, here's, here's, the, here's the smartest thing I ever did. I don't drink a lot and I don't smoke at all. So my voice is still high pitched and whiny, so I can actually I can actually match Woody of twenty three years ago, on the because they have every line I've ever said uh, on the dat. They've got it in a hard drive somewhere, and I can more or less sound wow. the same. And uh, uh, and our condolences about Aston Villa. Um, it must have been a, a tough few weeks for you. You're a cruel man. You're a cruel, cruel man. Here's what I would have liked to have done is just come over at the beginning of the season and put, say, you know, 100 quid on Leicester at 5,000 to 1. I wonder if anybody has done that, just to take a shot at that. But don't, don't look at me with those Aston Villa eyes. Don't, don't look at me buy, with You those could buy the club. Eyes. You could buy the club. Come on. <laughs> I think it's for sale. Listen, it's happened before. Every team goes through, uh, you know, peaks and valleys. We're in a bit of a valley right now. But all good things come to those who wait. Uh, Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Delightful. Thank you, Thank you so much. It was interesting because you and I saw this in the same screening, and uh, I had, I think, approached it, as I think many people had done, with a degree of trepidation. I know people had seen it before we saw it, but, you know, you always wonder, what's this going to look like? What's the point? You know, is it going to be 
going back towards the Roger Kipling or is it going to be, you know, in the, you remember when Kenneth Branagh came on, he was talking about Cinderella. He was talking about that kind of balance between, on the one hand, looking back towards the literary sources, the folklore, so the you know, fairy tale sources, and also respecting the cartoon. And, and that you're, what you're doing is kind of like a live action version of the cartoon. So I was, I, I was very trepidatious about it. And I have to say, I went in worrying that, that it wasn't going to gel. I came out, and I think we, we all did. It was you who was there. I, 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 I was there. You were there. Robin was there from the production of his son. Paul was there. So we all were, and I was there, and you were yes. there. And we all came out going, Wow. Wasn't that terrific? And there are a number of reasons why I think we we all sort of were so positive about it. The first one was I do think that there there was a worry that it might not work, that it might it might not achieve what you know, because the cartoon is so fabulous. I know that it was. I was very interested to hear John Favreau say in that interview that it was something that now they didn't perhaps didn't realise the value of, which I'm absolutely astonished by because you always think of it as being absolutely one of the mainstays, one of the films that you grew up with. It was one of the first films I ever saw in the cinema. I remember being taken to see it. I remember remember being really sort of profoundly affected by it and then having the soundtrack album and all that. So I thought that a number of things. Firstly, it does a really good job of balancing threat and pathos of, you know, menace and humour. So we start with a kind of running, jumping, action, chase sequence that sort of sets the pace. It tells you, OK, fine, this is going to be... I saw that some people in, the, uh, in uh, on Twitter were calling this the Jungle Book meets The Revenant. Well, it's not that. It, that's a silly thing to say. But on the other hand, there is that kind of, you know, that action pack. And also, just on that opening thing, don't miss the first 30 seconds. No, no, because, it, because it's... Yeah, yeah, it's a really... It sets the tone. Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, you get that. Secondly, um, uh, Neil Sadie is terrific as Mowgli. And there is... This this really weird thing when you first see him that's everything to do with his stance his the way in which he holds himself it's that really peculiar thing all it is as you said it's almost like seeing the, the cartoon character that you know come to life i mean it's really quite remarkable how much he gets that stance right that sort of you know absolute you know leading sort of confident and yet also you know childlike i think his performance is brilliant and all the more astonishing considering the fact that what he's doing is looking around at you know green and blue screens and not actually being able to see any of these creatures um, I think that the the world that it evokes uh, is terrific. There is this kind of sense of dreaminess about it. I mean, yes, it's photorealist, and you do believe that what you're looking at is a real sort of three-dimensional set, but it has this photorealist feel to it, but it also has that kind of strange dreamlike feel that everything's heightened, everything's slightly cranked up, everything's not quite real, so it's happening in a sort of half-remembered haze, which I like very much. Animal characterizations are really well done, and again, interesting in that interview that he was saying we didn't want to over-crank their responses so in fact what happens is it's in seeing the responses on the face of Mowgli that you actually get to understand the way in which the narrative is playing out and then because the way that the score works where the music works is that you're hearing you know there, there, are, there are all those sort of themes and hints that you know from before and then the point at which it breaks into song I thought worked really naturally the point at which Bill Murray suddenly starts doing a version of Bear Necessities although he's not really singing he's kind of talking his way through it I thought was really, really well done. He thought, oh, actually, they've tipped this over into being a film with songs in it, but it isn't a musical. And I was thinking, you know, we were talking about Magnolia before. You know, there's that moment in Magnolia when it suddenly basically turns into a musical yeah. sequence when everybody, I'm not saying for one minute the Jungle Book is like Magnolia, but I'm saying this is an example of a film which isn't a musical, but is so, it has such musicality in the way in which it tells its story that when it tips over into song, it doesn't seem in any way out of place. Christopher Walken's having great fun with the King Louis. <laughs> That's good doing that. What's that? He's doing the Christopher Walken thing, and he is. Uh, what is he? Is he a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic? What is it? Gigantopithecus. 
Gigantopithecus. And of course, they got Richard Sherman came in to write some new lines for that song in order to make that work. So basically, I think what it had, it has darkness, it has depth, it has the light and shade that you want from a sort of proper fully rounded family film. It absolutely is a film which is in love with the original Disney cartoon, but also refers back to the Rudyard Kipling source. Um, it's a movie which is made with clear hand-drawn affection, despite the fact it's all computer graphics. It's absolutely right to say that it's a hand-drawn thing. And I just sat there beaming. Now you might think it's ridiculous that me, a gigantopithecus, would ever dream I'd like to team with the likes of humankind. But together we'd have powers, all the jungle's treasures ours. I got desire, you got the fire, but the dream I dream takes too. So, ooh, I wanna be like you. Ooh, I wanna use that flame just the same as you can do. Oh, how magnificent it would be, a gigantopithecus like me. Good learn to do, like you humans do. Can learn to be like someone like you. Can learn to be like someone like me. Do you watch yourself now? Do you go back in and watch the performance once it's all put together like once. that? Just the once? Yeah, at this point, just once. I might, like I recently just saw Enchanted again. <laughs> like it's been 10 years and I, was, I watched it with my daughter. What did she think? She's like, oh, well, you are so silly, Mama. Like she, <laughs> uh, she likes the details. She's like, were you really climbing up? How did you climb up that building? Was that dragon really there, or is that make believe? And did they draw that? She was had a lot of questions. Is she about, slightly impressed that her mom's a movie star? No, and not, a princess. No, <laughs> no, not at all. And and she used to, uh, she used to tell me she's not into princesses anymore. She's out, outgrown princesses, but now she used to tell me she's like, Mom, I don't mean. I'm the princess, and you're the queen now. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Um, Have you told her about the follow up? Um, and is that why you were watching the original? No, I was I was watching it before the follow up had been sort of announced. Um, it actually came on TV, and so we kind of just said, kept did you the enjoy channel it? there. I did actually. There you go. I See, did. What else did say? So. No, you know, I I think uh, I think time is a real gift to me because when I watch something too close to when I did it, I'm very um, very self critical. Which I think can be a good thing, and I think that keeps you growing. But um, I sort of miss the the larger impact of of a film, and so to have some distance, I got to really just enjoy the film Enchanted without sort of any anything personal on it. Yeah. And where are you with your long term Janis Joplin movie idea? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's th- not imminent, then. No, no, not imminent. No. It's one of those that has, it's been through many incarnations with many actresses. Are you still, so. keen, are you still keen? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's just, it's kind of been just going through different filmmakers and all of that. So, um, you know, eventually I'm going to age out if I haven't already, but, uh, you know. It's not imminent then. Yeah. But Lois Lane? More Lois Lane now. Is that Justice League? Um, Justice League is, is done. I've, I've filmed my, my bit of Justice League and then um, we'll see moving forward. That's kind of a film by film experience you will be aware of course and this is the point where every actor that we speak to goes well I just I don't want to talk about that and I really can't think about that I'm just concentrating on a day-by-day basis but there is how do I already know what you're going to ask me just based on saying that well (laughs) what what do you think I'm going to ask Uh, really you know you go ahead go ahead yeah 
Well, Oscar nominations, right? So you've had five. I really can't think about that right now. You know, I'm just going day by day. <laughs> I figured we both had to do our bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm we still. I'll follow we up. Both, okay. I've got a difficult follow up, right? So you've you've been nominated five times, but maybe this is the time because Nocturnal Animals as well. So you're being talked about for that movie, and you're being talked about for this movie. So. So, <laughs> so, are you optimistic? Uh, do you okay? Do you, do you even th- um, do you do you think you're in with a shout? Do I think this I'm, time? Well, in with a shout. What's that? You okay? Explain. So you're in with a chance. In with a chance. Okay. Maybe I'm, like, I'm American. Uh, no, gosh, no. Okay. Fine. No, it's not how I really. No, I kind of. Uh, I know. I know it does sound so like. Well, I don't really think about it, but like. For me, especially with these two films, I'm super proud of these films. And I do feel a great responsibility being the female lead to, like, you know, communicate these really interesting, well-developed female characters. And, and um, so that was kind of the real joy. And not, not to say you don't think about it when people start talking. Like, I don't, like, follow, you know, what is what is the great word? Prognosticators? Oh, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. I don't follow. You don't follow that. No, I don't. Okay. But you know, you guys are talking to me. Well, look, so I I have to ask it, and you you and can I answer have to, it, and then yeah. there we go. And we. I don't follow them, but um, honestly, you know, my favorite part about it is it's the one time I get to sit and talk with other actresses. They let us sit at like a table together. They let us all just be together, and like because you don't get <laughs> as many opportunities to work with these great, awesome women that you admire so much. So I get to sit at a table, coming up with like Emma Stone and Viola Davis, and it just turns into like. Really wonderful discussion. Cool. Well, I hope you have a wonderful discussion, then you get something at the end of the evening. Anyway, uh, Arrival, (laughs) I I think it's one of the films of the year, so I certainly thought it was terrific. Thank you. Uh, Amy Adams, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. What might be called first contact. The objects measure at least... I'm Colonel G.T. Webber from Army Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one, what do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Hey, we're heading to Daytona. So you guys want to tag along for a bit, maybe? Party some babies into us? Oh, we're not going to Daytona. Are you kidding me right now? Grandma's funeral was yesterday. She told me on her deathbed, you get back out there again. Hey, Grandpa. Did he just call you Grandpa? What the... Want to be a lamb and get that for me? After Dirty Grandpa, I did feel genuinely unclean. I mean, genuinely, like that thing about, you know, I want to go and have a shower because I've just... Because it's so revolting. So anyway, the story is uh, Robert De Niro... I have to say that again because I just can't really believe that it's Robert De Niro um, is this OAP who's just lost his wife and he's meant to be bereaved. Um, and he gets his grandson, played by Zac Efron, to say, take him. He says, you have to come to, 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 to Florida with me. And Zac Efron doesn't want to do this because he's about to get married. And it's apparent that actually what happens is that, that Robert De Niro's character just wants to go completely hog wild and have loads and loads of, you know, of sex and uh, and he's bringing Zach along for the ride because he thinks that that, that Zach needs needs loosening up. Um, you sit there, kind of slack jawed, that people that you've admired in the past have got anything to do with it. I mean, this is a film which you know it's not just the end, the endless, endless, endless crass sexual jokes. It's not the fact that it makes a joke at one point, which is a gag 
about um, molestation. It's not just a film in which they have, uh, you know, gone hell for leather to just kind of, you know, think of the most gross uh, humour possible and then put it into the mouths of people that you might otherwise have admired. It's that watching it, um, I had to, I had that, that feeling firstly of thinking, I'm going to find it hard to watch a Robert De Niro film again because I, it's not that I feel that he should be the keeper of the flame of everything that he's done that was great in the past, but it reminded me of Movie 43 and thinking, what are these people doing in this film? What has the director, who incidentally, you know, is a long-time collaborator with, uh, with Sasha Baron Cohen, got on these people that they're doing this? And why is it that somebody, you know... I mean, Zac Efron, you can kind of say, OK, well... You know, uh, he you know he came to fame doing things like High School Musical, and maybe somewhere in some bonkers alternative universe, it makes sense for him to just take part in something that is really crass and vulgar and unpleasant in order to put clear blue water between him and his sort of squeaky. You know, it's like somebody being in a boy band and then, you know, making a, a heavy metal record or something. No, actually, it's nothing like that because heavy metal records can be great and wonderful. And this is just foul. I mean, really foul, really, really. I mean, like jokes, jokes that if somebody repeated them at a party, you'd throw them out. Um, there are there are things that I've seen in Bad Grandpa that I never I can never unsee. Robert De Niro doing things that I can't repeat on the air because of the time of day run that I can't ever unsee. And I unfortunately now if I watch Goodfellas or I watch King of Comedy, rather than seeing, you know, Rupert Pupkin being brilliant, I'm going to see Robert De Niro with with um Zach Efron walking in on him and finding him relaxing in a gentleman's way, as Viz Comics used to call it. And not just in a fleeting shot, but for a long time, and thinking, at what at, oh, you know, I know he's got bills to pay and I know he's got projects that he wants to finance. And I'm sure that he that he feels that he's earned his he's earned his keep. And it's not like he hasn't let us down before. But this isn't like being let down. This is this is really like somebody putting their chin forward and challenging you to uh, to still have any any vestigial respect for them at all. I thought it was really gross. I thought its sense of humour was so wildly misjudged. I know it's very smug and very smart and very middle class now to go, oh, well, you're shocked by those things. You know, oh, well, you know, we're comedians and we can push the boundaries of of taste and that's what we're doing. We're going, I can just imagine all the people making it sitting around in their smug dinner parties, smugly congratulating themselves on making something. Oh, it's so shocking. It's so offensive. It's so shocking. And just thinking, I just don't want the film to exist. I wish I hadn't seen it. I wish I could unsee it, but I can't. But I don't want to talk about it anymore. Is it worse than Entourage? <sighs> I tell you what, somewhere in hell, there is a multiplex playing this on a double bill with Movie 43 and Entourage. For the people who, who um, might be listening to the podcast whilst driving, which I do sometimes, right, uh, as well, uh, at the the Werner Herzog sat nav, it's got to happen. Might be kind of. I would buy that. I would buy that. Um, so here is the list that um, uh, Robin, the editor, uh, handed me of uh, potential things that should be on a Herzog sat nav. Okay, um, you have reached your destination. That would be pretty good. Yeah, it feels very final, doesn't it? Take the mode away. He probably doesn't say mode away in that way. Go right on the roundabout. <laughs> Turn around when possible. <laughs> Make a U-turn. 
You are driving into the abyss. <laughs> and my favourite. Watch out for the squirrel. <laughs> it's uncanny, isn't it? Oh, God. Better than us. It's not. It's really, really good. Werner Herzog Satnav there, brought to you by our friends Sanjeev Baskar and James King. Raising the bar. Uh, which brings us to an end of our best of 2016. And I, for one, have really, really enjoyed myself. And hearing all those clips again has made me feel really happy. Same with you, Mark? Absolutely. I feel more happy than a very happy thing. This has been... No, you forget you 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 forget you haven't been happy since Nixon resigned. I know, but I but I am now happy, which is unusual. This has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live. Plenty more to come in 2017. Thanks for listening. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio Five Live. BBC.co.uk/slash Five Live.